Hosea means salvation. It comes from the same root as Yeshua, which may sound like a couple other names you know. Joshua, Jesus. But a savior story, the prophet Hosea is not. Now you've heard it said, before the rainbow comes the storm. In the Bible, before the Prince of Peace comes the prophet. And this one's a real humdinger. Hosea is a great lesson in Bible reading 101, particularly about metaphors. Now, some metaphors in the Bible are really useful for us understanding our relationship to God in the modern context. God, our rock. You get that. God, our shepherd. That's harder, but we can get there. God, our creator. But then there are some metaphors, when taken to their natural conclusions, are almost harmful. Like today's. Today, God comes off as an abusive husband. First, he tears into the spouse Israel for all the wrongdoing. You did this, you did that. And because of this, God promises the destruction of the northern kingdom, Israel. Sort of forewarns about the deportation of that southern kingdom, Judah, and promises that all is going to be very, very painful. But at the very end, says, oh, but, but I love you. It's okay. Come back to me. Now, metaphors are hard, and they're so contextually based that sometimes we need to seriously consider one of the messages within the story, to try and understand something that God is saying to us, to try to remove the historical baggage, remove images born of patriarchal societies. So what are we to take away from this very difficult biblical image? We could focus on this as a prime example that idolatry and sexuality are often woven together throughout the scriptures. We could focus on the lessons for wedded couples or for individuals seeking to be faithful to God. But for me, the strength of Hosea comes from God's call for institutional faithfulness. And how costly institutional unfaithfulness can be. I often take it for granted the perspective of a mainline Christian. There are often sort of two streams when it comes to thinking about sin and sinfulness. On the one hand, of many churches down the road, you could listen to how sin is all about those little choices you make every day. Sin is about you deciding between right and wrong at any given point, right? In this way, sin in the Bible becomes sort of a collection of moralisms. You find folks who emphasize the Proverbs. Emphasize any instructions in the Bible about purity and doing all the right things. On the other hand, there's what most mainline Christians tend to fall towards. A sort of sense of institutional sinfulness. The idea that we make choices often based upon and within the context of institutions. Most folks here would understand that folks in poverty don't choose to be poor. They're, bone, they're born in poverty. 
And within that context of that institution of racism and socioeconomic discord, their choices are few. This passage lends itself well to convincing me that that perspective is the right one. Or at least it's the one that Hosea is interested in. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom. After Israel came from Egypt, they ended up breaking off into two kingdoms. And Hosea is talking to the northern kingdom in 750 B.C. And he delivers one message. It says, you as a people have been unfaithful to me. Remember, this is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, whose nickname was Israel. This is the God who had made promises to them along the way. The promise of the rainbow to never bring wrath down on the people of God. The promise to Abraham, the covenant that says, I will make your people multiply as a nation. This is a God who makes covenants with people groups and with institutions. I think that's important because it seems like, from Hosea's perspective, the people of Israel have not kept up their institutional end of the bargain. God, therefore, calls Hosea to marry a wife who is unfaithful. Now, it's difficult Hebrew here. They say it's the second most difficult Bible book to translate because it may have had a lot of dialect from the northern kingdom that we're still trying to understand. For example, the word whoredom is not the word for prostitute. It's not the word for harlot. We're not 100% certain what it means except to say this is someone who was serially unfaithful, whether to previous husbands or to other relationships, we don't know. But we get the picture. God is relating to the people of Israel that they have been, as Hosea should pick up in Gomer, someone who's been unfaithful to their original calling. We're reminded that God is upset with Israel and its institutional unfaithfulness with some of the names that God proposes for the children. Jezreel means God sows. But what it really references is the history of violence in the Valley of Jezreel. One of the first stories that have been well on the minds of the people hearing Hosea's prophecy is the slaughter of the 70. When 70 soldiers were slaughtered, their heads piled into the Valley of Jezreel. They'd remember the story of Jezebel, who was thrown out the window so that her body could be eaten by the dogs of the Jezreel Valley. Or Naboth of the valley, who was murdered so somebody could have his vineyard. So God says to Hosea, have a child, and your firstborn should be a reminder of the worst violence that the world has ever seen and can remember. It's like if God said to you, I hope you have a child named Darfur or Auschwitz. And that's only number one. God's only getting started here, folks. Number two. Hosea has a daughter. Name her Lo Ruhamah, which means not pitied by God or not cherished by God. 
To make matters worse, the word ruhama, which does talk about pity or cherish, is a close relative of the word for which it's rooted, ruhama, which means womb. This is God's ultimate disowning of the people. And then finally, name number three, lo-ami, means not my people. Can you imagine the roll call in these children's class? Frederick Buechner invites us to think about that. The teacher's reading through the names. Auschwitz, here. Not cherished by God, here. Not my people, here. With each call, Hosea would score a prophetic bullseye in absentia, teaching a lesson to the other students, to the teachers and to anyone in the world who would come to know their names, the lesson of the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel. A reminder of God's call to worship God alone, to take care of the poor, to welcome the immigrant, to receive the widow into your home. The modern parallels are terrifying when you think about Hosea's anger and the world in which we live. And to make matters worse, the Hebrews would have understood that this was a tiered insult. James Lindbergh points out, this terrifying progression begins with the first child, Jezreel, announcing a future without a king. No leadership. The second, the prophet's daughter, Lurahamah, points to a future without God's compassion. But the youngest son does the worst damage. Loami announcing a future without God. As Hosea proclaims the word of the Lord, I will no longer have pity on the house of Israel or forgive them. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. See you next Sunday. The biblical scholars suggest to let us hold on to this moment. Not to let church be a place where we feel happy all the time, where we come for the magical solutions brought to you by the ten-foot pulpit. But that we can recognize in the scriptures the parallels to our own emotions And Lord have mercy, have we had parallels to these emotions in our lives in the past few months. Even as I sat with some of your students in a retreat center in North Carolina, news came in. More attacks, more violence, more hate. Institutions breaking down. I've had this sense that our institutions are indeed breaking down, and really no one knows exactly what the future looks like. So I started asking people about it. From my friends here, to people in North Carolina, folks I saw in Tennessee, a teacher in the Midwest, a computer programmer from Alabama, and everyone seems to have the same sense 
that something is wrong with our institutions. They're just not quite getting the job done. Whether it's the government, whether it's our churches, even the ones most dear to us, our families. It's a sense that everything's up in the air and the juggling is causing an anxiety and ambiguity as finances are short and direction is lost. What does the future look like? No solutions come from the pulpit today, friends. But a promise of hope does. The very last verse of our passage, Hosea says, Yet the number of people of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which can be neither measured nor numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. It's important for us to hold on to those emotions, to remember hope, but to hold on to where we are so that the past does not repeat itself. To be okay with feeling lost. In a favorite scene from Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, the crew sails beyond the known world on a quest to rescue Captain Jack Sparrow. Will Turner asks Captain Barbosa for a heading. With a keen eye born of long experience on the sea, Barbosa replies, Aye, we're good and lost now. Lost, Elizabeth Swan asks, clearly unsettled by the relish with which Barbosa has delivered his navigational assessment. For sure, Barbosa assures her. You have to be lost to find a place that can't be found. Elsewise, everyone would know where it was. You have to be lost to find a place that can't be found. Elsewise, everyone would know where it was. Can we be okay with not knowing what the future is going to look like? Can we be okay with not promising our kids that if they just get a certain number of degrees from a certain kind of institution that their life is going to be all roses? Can we, can we be okay with electing leaders who don't promise us easy answers? Can we be okay having a church that doesn't know what tomorrow is going to look like, but that promises to be faithful in the direction of Christ. Can we be okay? This is a tough season for the world, for our church, for our people, our families, for every institution the world has known. But if you listen for the whispers you can hear God in the great act of reclamation. Tilling up the ground, stirring it around, sitting in to our lives, calling through whispers and prophets and voices of the future. If we can plug our ears to the cacophony 
of prideful assurances and solutions being thrown our ways, you can hear it. May that be your spiritual practice this week, I pray. I send you forward with this blessing from Jan Richardson, one of my favorite bloggers from the Painted Prayer Book. It's called A Blessing When the World is Ending. Look, the world is always ending somewhere. Somewhere the sun has come crashing down. Somewhere it has gone completely dark. Somewhere it has ended with the gun, the knife, the fist. Somewhere it has ended with the slammed door, the shattered hope. Somewhere it has ended with the utter quiet that follows the news from the phone, the television, the hospital room. Somewhere it has ended with a tenderness that will break your heart. But listen, this blessing means to be anything but morose. It has not come to cause despair. It is simply here because there is nothing a blessing is better suited for than an ending. Nothing that cries out more for a blessing than when a world is falling apart. This blessing will not fix you, will not mend you, will not give you false comfort. It will not talk to you about one door opening when another one closes. It will simply sit itself beside you among the shards and gently turn your face toward the direction from which the light will come, gathering itself about you as the world begins again. Look for the light. Amen.